0: Welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. I'd like to thank the University of Tennessee-Knoxville College of Social Work for being one of the sponsors of this episode. UTK has a phenomenal social work program with the opportunity to do your bachelor's, master's, and doctorate of social work online. Of course, they also have excellent classes in person in both Knoxville and Nashville. UTK is committed to preparing social workers who will support human potential and dignity and challenge racism in all forms of oppression. Scholarships are available. Go to www.csw.utk.edu to learn more. In this episode I talk with Mr. Garland Jaggers and Dr. Denise McLean Davison about their work with the National Association of Black Social Workers. I am incredibly grateful for their participation in this interview. This is important history and current work, and I'm honored to amplify it on doing the work. Mr. Garland Jaggers is a former professor in the Black Studies Department at the University of Detroit and a co-founder of both Detroit's Association of Black Social Workers and the National Association of Black Social Workers. Dr. Denise McLean-Davison is an associate professor at Morgan State University and the founding researcher and archivist of the National Association of Black Social Workers. They discuss the history of NABSW, which started in 1968, soon after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when a group of black social workers brought up concerns of racism to the mostly white National Association of Social Workers. They took over the stage and made demands at the National Conference on Social Welfare, walked out, and decided to create their own organization. Mr. Jaggers explains the main issues at the time and details the experience. Dr. Davison explains the need to center black expertise in research, curriculum, teaching, and other forms of practice. We discuss NABSW's work developing Black researchers and practitioners, their own code of ethics, and positions on issues such as transracial adoption and licensing. Mr. Jaggers and Dr. Davison share their thoughts on the social work profession, racism, and Black liberation. They talk about their focus on the Black family and community, strengths-based liberatory approaches, and commitment to do this work, by any means necessary. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. If you're interested in purchasing Mr. Jagger's books, That Rare Moment in History Volumes 1 and 2, please contact Mr. Jaggers at garland underscore Jaggers at net. So before we get into the episode, I'm so excited to tell you all about this episode's sponsor, Designs by T. T is a Brooklyn based social worker. Who's created a line of t-shirts and accessories to disrupt places and spaces and the fashion industry. This t-shirt line is doing what no other social worker has done before, fusing creativity with art, and she's managed to create a local buzz. She gives 10% of all sales towards purchasing essentials for children and families in a local shelter. She's got a social work collection, a socially conscious collection, a royalty collection, a kid's collection, you've got to check her out at T that's T-E-E, dot 3com Check out the link in the show notes and take $5 off your next t-shirt order with the code T-POD5, that's T-E-E-P-O-D and the number 5, T-POD5. And now, here's the interview. So, Mr. Jaggers and Dr. Davison, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. I am incredibly honored and privileged to have you both on here as guests.
1: Thank you for inviting us. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. And to get started, I really want to jump right into the history of NABSW. So, I was hoping we could begin with that.
2: NABSW started 55 days after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. It started as a result of a meeting held in Washington DC in April, a meeting uh, organized by the National Association of Social Workers. It was called an urban crisis meeting. Uh, There were several blacks, including myself attending, but it was mostly a white organization, NASW. We were sort of offended by the fact that they would call a meeting on the urban crisis and have so few black people. So the blacks did get together after that. And we decided to go to San Francisco and confront NCSW on its inability to deal with the urban crisis from our perspective. That's how it started.
1: Robert Jaggers, would you share with our audience what NCSW was and what was their purpose?
2: NCSW National Conference on Social Welfare was the umbrella organization for NASW of the Association of uh, Community Organizations and other social organizations. It was just the umbrella.
0: So what happened when you went out there and, um, you know, as you say, confronted them on this issue?
2: Well, to make a long story short, we attempted to meet with the executives of NCSW because we wanted to, uh, one, either get on the agenda or talk with them about the issues as we saw them. However, they refused to uh, speak with us, so we decided to list our differences with NCSW, uh, take over the stage on a Tuesday or Wednesday morning, issue our conditions, and walk out, and decided to form our own organization.
0: Okay, so you, so you listed your differences, you took over the stage, walked out, and created NABSW at that point.
2: That's the short story, yes.
0: Could you share what some of the differences were? Uh,
2: the main ones were, one, most of the topics about the urban crisis uh, contained papers written by white folks. Not one Black person was talking about urban crisis. That did not ring the bell with us. Why is it at uh, this time in in space, after the, the assassination of Martin Luther King, are the whites still the experts on the Black crisis? That was our point. Another point was, who is doing the research on the Black community? Once again, the issue becomes white social workers. Another point was, why don't we have members on the board of NCSW? There's only one, his name, there are two, rather. And uh, we we feel that we had a right to uh, have more on the board. The National Welfare Rights Organization was there. We insisted that they they have at least one member on the board of NCSW. So those are the kinds of demands that we were putting before them. And we decided that since they were not going to uh, respond to them, and would not meet with us. We walked out and began forming our own organization.
0: So when you're sharing that, you know what those issues were back then that led to the formation of NABSW. And I realize it's the short version of a long story. You know, some of the, some, a lot of this is still the same way today, right? That's why we're still
2: in existence. Yes, things have not changed that much, uh, and we still have the same issue. Except at the same time, we are dealing with issues from our standpoint of view so that uh, we are making progress in that area. We're doing research on our own. We're working in the, in the Black community. We have a national structure, and it allows us to confront other organizations from a national point of view, structurally.
1: I think one of the biggest things that... Um comes through with the National Association of Black Social Workers. And one of the demands was that we, as in Black people, should be able to self-define, self-name, and speak for our own self. We were demanding that we center our own voice and expertise and concerns. And so it was, yes, we confronted this other organization, because we felt that it was doing an unjust job of actually serving the black and brown communities, but also because we felt that um, these were the folks who were making policies. These were the folks who were um, having the national voice, believing us out of it. But in addition to that, one of the things that we felt very strongly about was that um, as you ask about what is going on now, there was a whole uh, concerted effort to address the curriculum and to address the way um, social workers were being trained and educated um, and the way, and that they also have representation, um, not only in the academy, but also in nonprofit and government um, institutions that were serving um, black communities. And yes, that sounds very familiar. Fifty plus years later,
0: yeah, which I really think speaks to to the entrenched, you know, white supremacy that's within the field of social work.
1: Yes, um, some people may disagree, and actually, um, there was quite a. Um, I feel like there was a concerted effort, according to the. Um, historical documents that we've kept, and the uh, work that we did with the Black Caucus, which was the Journal of uh, National Association of Black Social Workers, and actually beginning to get those views up front. But somewhere, it seems like around maybe uh, late 70s, early 80s, that folks stopped kind of listening listening to this Black voice, and those voices were kind of drowned and put underground again. And so um, one thing that I'm very conscious of, and that is, is that um, you've had people who have continued to do this race work for all these years, but it's just a matter of um, who has really been amplifying those voices, how valued have those voices been able to be, and also kind of paying attention to what the reward and consequences has looked like for people who have spoken out. And so um, many people, I believe, stopped talking so much about race because they felt like it was a personal penalty um, for, to their professional career um, and to what it is that they want to gain.
2: There's one other aspect which I want to point up, and that is that. The Association of Black Social Workers in Detroit, which was organized before the National Association of, of Black Social Workers, was a Malcolm X organization. That was our thrust. We were by any means necessary. That was our our livelihood, our way of thinking, our direction. With the assassination of Martin Dr. Martin Luther King, what happened uh, nationally in the Black community was an attraction to that assassination and the the raising of Dr. Martin Luther King as the idol for the black community. That sort of dampened our direction because that's where the black community went in this this country. We are still, I am still a Malcolm X person, but I have to go along with the young people who are more Dr. Martin Luther King in that vein. So uh, that is a critical point in the history of our organization that is probably overlooked in a lot of cases, but I witnessed it because I had to feel it. I was a Malcolm X guy, and here comes the adoration, the the adoration that's due Martin Luther King came his way, and the community went in that direction to a certain extent.
1: It sounds like, um, Founder Jaggers, you're saying that people went a little bit more moderate, and so they weren't They took a different. They took on a different ideology because I know Whitney M. Young was a part of the uh, NCSW conference and he was a leader there. And I know that became a little bit of a that was a source of contingency between our uh, our organization and um, also you know what 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 he was doing with NCSW.
2: Yes, and he was of course he was the man in social work in those days. Uh, he was in charge of the urban league and that was a national organization funded from different sources. And of course he's, he had the respect of the, the white community. So, uh, and when, when we approached him as Malcolmite people that didn't sit too well, but you know, he, he had to do his job, but we still come off. in in my view for 50 some years now as, uh, Malcolm X, folks. That's my approach. Now, the organization is not totally Malcolm X, but uh, part of it is due to the adoration that's due Martin Luther King, but uh, his approach of turning the other cheek was not something that we were willing to tolerate or to deal with.
1: That's an interesting point that you make, because I think that there's uh, one of the concerns are are one of the, we're called the National Association of Black Social Workers, and I know you're speaking to what was happening in Detroit, which was something that you were a part of, but I know we also had the Philadelphia chapter that was already in existence, we had the Black Catalysts that were in Chicago that were in existence. We had a group that was calling themselves the Black Social Workers that was in New York. We had another group in D.C. So we had different pockets. Sure. St. Louis, um, it looks like New Orleans had some groups, and even out in the L.A. and in the Bay Area. But I, I, I guess what I want to try to emphasize is that how did you incorporate all of these different um, mindsets or value sets underneath this national umbrella and was there some tension in that in that space?
2: I'm sure there was some tension and there continues to be uh tension, but the fact that we uh had walked away from NCSW, that we felt that we were not being heard and that we could really build our own institution was the driving point behind what makes NA- BSW successful. The fact that we are building this ourselves, have a total voice in it, uh, run it, uh, make all the rules. That is what keeps us together.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I would agree with that. Yes. That we are very self that self-determination is actually actualized. Yes. Yes. I would also like to point out, I feel like in the founding, I've been a member of the organization for 34 years, but um, I would say in reading of the founding and serving as a historian for the organization, I am uh, just amazed and overwhelmed, find myself actually becoming very emotional at times, reading so much of what was happening at that time, because we as an organization weren't just in a vacuum by ourselves, we weren't the only ones. I love that you brought up the fact that there was the um other um the child welfare league that was there. Um, the fact that there was an organization I know that was addressing issues for um for women and for a for children. Let me see, let me make sure I get the name correct.
2: Settlement um, houses.
1: The settlement houses were there, yeah. yes. Um, I know there was a group that was there that was addressing the issue around immigrants uh at the same time and labor mm-hmm. that was being um, imported in from um from Mexican borders and that they were being brought in to actually to kind of bust the unions um here in America. Um and I'm trying to think of the name was a child. It was a welfare organization that dealt specifically. Welfare with, rights. Um, yes, a welfare, welfare rights, rights organization. Yeah. Yes. So these were poor black women, you know, that we were we were there trying to also represent. Um, just the fact that all of this was going on. So that kind of gives you some input. It gives you some context. And the fact that the Kerner Commission report had already come out. And it, too, was saying, listen, the issue is racism. The issue is racism. Uh, This is why the cities are on fire. This is why people are mad. This is why people are demanding more. This is why there's this huge wealth gap. Um, The issue is racism. And yet, (laughs) here we are, what, 50 plus years saying, the issue is racism. (laughs) (laughs) The issue is racism. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and, and, I, and I guess I think about that so, and I'm like, wow, what a moment to be in time where it appeared as if people were coming together very similar to what we saw with Black Lives Matter. The issues were still the same. We were still talking about police brutality. We were still talking about um, right to housing, you know, affordable housing, um, equitable pay, but every single solitary issue that was on the agenda in 1968 continues to be uh, minus a pandemic right now, right? It appears to be what we are now coming into a new administration having to address all over again or continue, maybe address again. It's, it's a continuum, I guess.
2: Well, let me go back to the issue of racism. That's not going back to it. Let me talk about racism. <laughs> <laughs> the number one mental health problem in America is white racism. That was our statement. Now. How did we deal with racism then? We approached NASW and said, look, from now on, we're going to charge you with dealing with the issue of racism. We don't have time because we cannot cure the problem of racism in America. It's a white problem. You deal with it, NASW. Now, I don't know what they've done over the last 50-some years, but we have not heard from them. But it's not our job to deal with racism. It's NASW's job. And we put that to them. And we confronted them in New York later on with the same thing, but they did not hear us, I don't think. But our point of view was we're not going to deal with racism. Racism is not our problem. It is the problem of America. And therefore, it's up to white America to deal with the racism in this country. That was our position 50-some years ago. And it's still mine.
1: I think also in terms of how we... uh, the, the, the documents read, we were really, we in ABSW were pushing in CSW, the field of social work, to actually um, implement democracy, to actually be who we say we are as a profession, to mm-hmm. actually uh, be who we say are, we are as a country, to mm-hmm. actually to address the issues of the, 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 poor, to actually make sure that everybody had access and we were really pushing for that. Um, um, what, what I hear, especially when you make the reference back to the Malcolm X, but I know it also to be with other organizations at that time, um, including the, the, the push of the black Panthers and, uh, Uh, some of the intellects that were bringing up uh, black studies was that we're getting a little impatient with you. Mm -hmm. We've been having this conversation for a minute now and we've become impatient and we're saying either move forward or we'll just build our own. We'll just step aside and do our own thing. But what we're not going to do is keep doing a dance of so-called negotiation, in which we really are bargaining away, our, are negotiating away our voice mm-hmm. and our and and our lives. That mm-hmm. we will stand up for the communities that you say that you believe that you're standing up for. So, did I get that right, Founder Jaggers? Perfect. <laughs>
0: So let's talk about some of the key positions of NABSW. You know, I I've read through some of the materials, of course, and we're gonna get into some of that. Um, and I think it's important, especially for you know young people, students who are listening, to get this history, which is why I'm so grateful to have you both on here. This is really important history, especially at this moment in time. And I know one of the um positions was around family separation and Ooh. removal versus you know um, placements within the black community right if there were going to be any sort of you know child abuse issues going on or even even how child abuse was defined and so I was hoping you could talk about that as well because it's obviously as we've been talking about this is still happening today and it's something we really need to talk about
2: well. Let me refer to our first national conference, which, which, which was held in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And the uh, theme of that conference was the Black family. For lo- too long, we've been told that the Black family was the source of our problem. And we know better. We know that the Black family has been the strength of our problem. And so we have always focused on the Black family over the years as a uh, the key to our survival, the key to our success, the key to our improvement. So the black family in my mind is the the, uh, beginning part of our development as a people. And so that was the issue at the very first conference in Philadelphia 50 some years ago. And it continues to be an issue for us today. The black family is important and we are supportive of it. We want to support it in all ways possible because I think it's one of our keys.
1: So family preservation is one of the things um, I've spoken to this at several different conferences and different places. And um, most people, if they've heard of uh, NABSW refer to the transracial adoption um, issue. And I believe that's where you are going um, Shimon. And I will say that I often start with, well, Family preservation is what we've always strived for. Mm -hmm. And who would not want to preserve their family? And so we were always addressing the issue that here were these outside external entities that were making it difficult for Black families to not only thrive, but were intentionally impacting and doing harm. And so the issue around um, transracial adoption becomes even more of an issue we're saying why are black kids and families being being split disproportionately to any other group and then when they're split then why are they not being placed in kin which kinship care comes out of our organization that was something we introduced uh, why is it why aren't th- why isn't this happening versus Uh, taking our kids outside of our community where we believe they will be harmed emotionally and culturally um, uh, and mentally, why aren't they being remaining? Why aren't you as an entity more focused on preserving Black families than pulling apart Black families? And so that's kind of the gist of it. Now, certainly it's much deeper than that. We had people were testifying in front of Congress. We had a huge fight. There were a lot of demands. We had um, position papers, many position papers that address the issue of transracial adoption. Uh, But much of what you see now, kind of referred to as family preservation, that is a, hmm, I don't wanna say distorted, but it's a little bit of distorted view of what, we, pre- we presented kinship care that those those terms are coming out of our, our, our community and out of our that also is part of that conversation.
2: The black family needs to be defined in terms of the role of the father, the mother, the child, the family, not in terms of any other structures that you want to place on them. What are their roles in terms of their education, their development, their community? Uh, Involvement, all of those things have to do with the Black family. And we insist, and I keep saying we, uh, I, because I, I like to say we, but we insist that uh, we determine what the Black family is and what its strengths are. And so we don't want people, you're not going to have people telling us anything about the Black family. Don't come telling us anything that you think is true about the Black family. And this comes from my father. My father taught me the lesson that the people who create problems have no idea how to solve them, period. Mm. Those who create problems have no idea as to how to solve it. So don't come into my community and tell me how to solve this problem because there are cultural uh, problems, there are, there are language problems. There's a misunderstanding and the black community has its own language structure and the white community has its language. And we, we you know, we transfer between one and the other but don't come into the community with white language, trying to help us. And that's hard to understand white language, but we understand it in the black community. <laughs> At least I don't understand it. <laughs> the black family is key to our success in my view.
1: Yeah, um, I want to bring up the, uh, an article that uh, Dr. Tanya Bryce and I wrote Um it was a book chapter, actually, The Strength of Black Families, the Elusive Ties of Perspective and Practice and Social Work Education. And that is one of the things in which we actually use the data from NABSW's um expertise in terms of its research to actually talk about um, some of the work of uh, Andrew Billingsley, Dr. Andrew Billingsley, and Dr. Robert Hill to talk about the um, definition of what a Black family, what the Black family is, what the purpose and the strengths of the Black family are, and to also talk about just what you just said, Founder Jaggers, which is This issue of um, deficit based language that gets used to describe and define and name what a black family is Um, and saying, listen, the black family is the strength and the core of black civilization. And not only that, we are strong. (laughs) We are resilient. You know we are the ones who are passing the history and the generations of uh, of knowledge from one from one from one generation to the next.
2: I like that. That's right on the mark.
0: Denise, when you were talking about um, family preservation, you know, and then as you both uh, Mr. Jaggers are talking about who creates the problem, you know, as you had just said, and I kept thinking about mandatory reporting. Uh, you know, this policy that puts social workers in a position that if they don't report, they're then considered unethical or in violation of this law, right? Which is in every state, this mandatory reporting. And I was wondering about NABSW's position on that.
1: The way we teach um, people to um, professionals to go out and actually over-survey Um, Black communities, Black and brown communities, and poor communities, Mm, that's a curriculum issue. And then it's also built into the structure of the uh, public policy, social welfare policies, and the organizations that receive funding from that. Um, We don't like to, I mean, social workers, we love to think of ourselves as the moral profession. We are the high ground folks. We are the people who, you know, came to save the day with our wonderful capes on. But um, what does saving the day look like in our community? You're not saving us if we don't address the issues of poverty. If you put it all on the micro and you put it on the person versus addressing the issues of poverty, addressing the issues of inequity, addressing the issues of discrimination. Um, But then you want to hold my family responsible for the impact of these failed policies. And that becomes, I think, the real unethical behavior that we failed to address the systems. And at one point, social work believed that. We believed that we were change agents and that we needed to focus on the systems. And then we became, we we took the the concept of personal responsibility and we began the we reconstituted re- re- uh, the Elizabethan poor laws mm. of, of, you know, shame and blame and uh, of the issue of the worthy poor. And so that's when this whole conversation, you know, knowing that there are certain groups that get kind of left behind education, get left behind in terms of access to um, uh, pay- paying jobs where, you know, where they can make living wages. This whole entire setup. Yet we hold those families responsible for the impact. Without and, and take our hands off of it as a country, as um, social workers, we are going in and we begin to then be the people who police and surveil and punish these families for the impact of these failed um, policies.
2: You know, when I when I was a uh before I became a social worker, I was doing social work. And here's how I did it. I worked for the welfare department. They would give me a list of things I had to check out when I interviewed a family. And I went in there and checked them all off. It had nothing to do with the person. It had to do with what the agency wanted to know. So they could either continue or close the case. That was all that form was about. It was a form. So The system is set up to get the information it wants in order to do what it wants to do for the family. You don't have to have a relationship with this welfare person. I worked for the Welfare Department before I became a social worker. All you have to do is go out there and check off this list. It's an amazing uh, contradiction to social work because as a social worker, I would go out and i say, okay, now, uh, let's see now. How can we get get you some money? (laughs) So, I had a guy. Who had a car and the welfare department says, Look, if you have a car, you have to sell it unless it gives unless it creates income. So I said, Okay, Mr. Whatever. I want you to go out to Eight Mile and Woodward, and I want you to transport people from the lat from the bus stop there to the hospital that they can't get to out in Northfield and charge them a dollar. So he created a bit a business charging people whatever go from point A to point D and the bus system would not take them there. That was my approach as a social worker to deal with this crazy form that they gave me because I looked for rules and regulations that allowed me to do things besides what this form allowed me to do. Hmm. That, Hmm. I think, is social work. That is how you uh, relate to people. But the, the form is not social work. If I'm going in there to just check off uh, how many kids do you have? Did you receive any money? Did anyone visit you overnight? But well, give me a break. That's not social work. That's oppression. But that's what you have to do when you're working in that system. Fill out forms and not really have to relate to the problems of people.
1: I think that that's what was built into um those were those were some of the issues that in 1968 when our organization was founded that those were some of the issues we were addressing we were saying that the laws and the rules and the governing bodies have built in a level of oppression that is hurting our communities and we sought to say if you are sincere once again about helping people which is what your body says that it does, then you need to do something different. And when NCSW decided they wouldn't do something different, NABSW did something different. And I know through our organization, Throughout the years, we've had several different um, child welfare agencies and organizations that have uh, developed and continue to be in existence to address the issue of um, the preservation of Black families. I know that for sure.
2: Well, here in Detroit, uh, one of the uh, results of our activities is the creation of Black Family Development Center here in Detroit. And it has the values of family preservation that we believe in. And so we are very supportive of it and it supports us. Uh, So we do have some structural organizations now outside of the black social workers that is now providing the kinds of services that we believe our community deserves.
1: Isn't that also Alice Thompson's uh, organization? And she was a long-term member and continues to be a long-term member of our organization. Um, In fact, NABSW gave, um, I believe it was a thousand dollar grant as a seed grant for her to actually uh, begin the organization.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. That's a really important story to have to show, you know, how these institutions have been built, you know, that came out of NABSW's work. What are some of the other key positions of NABSW?
1: There, there's so much. I think that um, I think what's important, and especially, I know as we begin to to think about addressing uh, trying to build the next generation of social workers who will be responsive, to um, the needs and the and the hearts and the matter and the cultural concerns of of different um, of our of our communities, especially the Black community, I, is to understand that liberation is always at the center of the Black social workers. And so, I know most people refer to NASW's code of ethics, but within our code of ethics we address liberation for black commun- the Black community. We don't see ourselves as being codependent on um, our external and other organizations and external systems that do not support the well-being, the liberation, the consciousness, the development, and the uplift of the Black community. And I think that that The fact that we state it very uh, plainly within our uh, code of ethics and our constitution, the way it was written, and the work that we've done over the years. uh, I think that's something that is very appealing to the next generation. Um, I'm hearing it. Um, if you're looking at what's being said around Black Lives Matter, if you're looking at the issues around voting, voting suppression um, and not just Black Lives Matter, but other different organizations that are saying, listen, we're tired of a level of oppression that is built into these different systems. Um, you will see that there is a coalition and a um, that resonates with what NABSW um, has always stood for. And I know, and I'm surprised you haven't brought up the issue of licensing. (laughs) because <laughs> that also was a sticky point uh, between our organization and nasw at the time. And so just to cut to it real quickly, uh, part of the reason why we didn't want organiz- we didn't want to dress address licensing is because we also once again recognize that it would create an imbalance. It would create a um, division. Um, based on mostly race lines and economic lines. And we also said that um, we recognized that it was not going to necessarily mean cultural competency, that the people who would be licensed or what it meant to be licensed uh, wasn't necessarily what it meant to be um, a social worker. And as you heard uh, Founder Jagger say, you know, if we look back, social workers were social workers before they were called social workers and people who um, have the welfare of the community at heart looks very different from what we were talking about before in terms of social control agents that looks very different from each other and so to be licensed uh, we felt was like to first of all give power and to one organization that will be able to define and say who was and who was not a social worker, but not necessarily to put the best person in our community, which could advance liberation and the welfare of the black community.
2: There's one other aspect of licensing, and that is uh, licensing provides certain people to uh, receive monies as a result of their ability to provide a certain kind of service. So there's a distribution of money that goes to those who are licensed as opposed to those who are not. And it was a, an effort in Michigan at least to prepare a certain group of social workers to begin to receive those monies which were becoming available for services beyond the psychiatrists and the psychologists. They were at first the ones who could receive money for services. Then the license provided other folks to receive monies in that particular field, uh, in particular fields, of service. That was the primary thing that happened in Michigan. That's that's how it started. They were getting ready to uh, have some people provide uh, receive monies for services and others not.
1: Once again, I think it goes back to the issue around how money is being how how how. Money is moving the issue of policy, moving who gets preferential treatment, moving who is seen as a problem and who is seen as a person able to address the problem. I think also in terms of the licensing, we that's also, it reinforced these pathology conversations about who our community members were. And uh, it continues to do that. Yeah. Uh, because in order to get paid, you got to come up with a label and a diagnosis, right? And so that was our fear. That was our this is written into our literature and our research back in the 70s. We this was our fear mm-hmm. that we did not want to be defined as the problem. We were not going to be in the position to always be the client. Mm-hmm that we had our own ways of knowing and our own solutions. Uh, We had our own programs, we had our own outset. I love the fact that um, at the first national conference of the black social workers, we weren't spending a whole bunch of time talking about what someone else was doing. We actually were talking about building um, a whole theory around a Black personality. We actually, and that's some of founding Jagger's work. I mean, but we actually were going out and saying, how do we build our own institutions? That was a huge thing for us. Um, How do we... um, Make sure that people in our community who work in our community understand and appreciate and value our community. This was at the core and continues to be at the core of the National Association of Black Social Workers. And I think that gets overlooked when we go into, oh, transracial adoption, oh, they just don't like white people. No, it's more complicated than that. Oh, licensing. Eh, They really just didn't like that organization in ASW, or we just didn't want to um, have, what is it, professional. We didn't want to be professional Mm -hmm. social workers. And and it's so much more complicated than that.
2: Yes. And we also had a financial dimension to our uh, organizations from day one. And that was that we wanted to uh, make sure that our efforts, whatever they were, were financially uh, productive for our black community. For example, our first conferences were always held in the black community. We held our fourth one at Fisk University, a beautiful place, and uh, the atmosphere was so congenial. Uh, the third one was at Malcolm X College in in Washington, in uh, Chicago. The second one was at uh, Howard University in in uh, So we had a financial dimension to all of our efforts. We were not out here by ourselves trying to do something different. We were out here trying to build not only the black family, but the black community. So we had the whole picture in our focus. Uh, We just haven't accomplished it yet, but we're there. We're we're on our way. Uh, There is a financial dimension to our efforts. Uh, and it's, it 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 uh, goes along with our efforts toward the Black family. So you got to join the two, the Black family and the Black community. That's part of our thrust.
1: I want to get back to some of the ethics, the ethical concerns, once again, that we were addressing as an organization. And um, it's interesting the way Founder Jaggers was even talking about the way we... As an organization operated within the first ten years, we were for us by us. So some people might call it fubu, right? We were making sure that we had an economic um, an economic responsibility. We had a, we we understood that we wanted to make sure money was being returned, spent in our community, for our community, by our community. That was huge for us. So one way we knew this is we were having a conference that would attract X amount of people. Those dollars should be spent in our community by our people. At our restaurants, at our, um, we didn't have hotels necessarily in those spaces. But as you heard, um, Baba Jackers say, you're, you're you're hearing us talk about being at different um, HBCUs, being connected, um, historically black colleges and universities, utilizing the expertise of the people who were in academia, being in um, urban communities. When we were going to have a conference, uh, being close to the people. And I think that's something that's also extremely important is that how the people who were um, we understood that there were people who had been formally trained. But we also were very involved with the activists, activists that were in our communities, lay people who were out there on the front lines, kind of stirring it up. You know, we, so there was a place for everybody, and this collective voice was also, was also and continues to be a strength of our organization. There was never a division of just the educators, just the administrators, just the lay people. It was anybody who was here for the welfare, the betterment, the community betterment of Black communities. They were welcomed. We also were very clear that people we were, were inclusive of people of African ancestry. Why? Because we understand what happens when uh, the white gaze comes in. We understand what happens when People don't have a safe space to talk about what they're experiencing at their job, what they're experiencing in their community. We wanted to create a family. We continue to create a very family uh, uh, atmosphere and culture, a village where we are having an exchange of ideals and strategies and understanding what needs to happen next. And so we're very intentional about what the stance have been within our organization.
0: As we're talking, you know, so many things that you've touched on really, to me, just drive home some stuff. Like I think about a lot around ethics and this concept of professionalism and it being used really as a tool to separate social workers from the community. And what you're talking about is being with the community, part of the community, in the community. And yes, <laughs> <laughs> right? we are not separate.
1: There is a linked fate that I cannot be well if my community is not well, that we are, you know, therefore I am, I am, therefore we are. We're very clear about that there is a synergy and that it is our responsibility as social workers who occupy different spaces to stand on behalf of our community's welfare. This is written into our code of
2: ethics. I learned after coming out of the school of social work, I was a psychiatric social worker. I learned that Freud and his stuff didn't work. So I had to go out and create my own therapeutic failure in in terms of how to deal with people. And in many cases, I was very, very successful. But in terms of Ego, id, and superego and all that stuff, fine to read but what works in the black community. That's what we're in the in the process of trying to develop. What is it that works in the black community in terms of uh, uh uplifting our people? We need to, to uh to codify these theories. Uh, and I've heard a lot of good papers at all the black social workers' conferences, but we need to codify this stuff, put it in, the, in one place, and let the next generation so black social workers began to to take that and use it effectively in the black community. We're at the point now, thanks to Dr. Denise Davidson, that she has a an archive in the process <clears throat> and students are able to students will be able to go there and learn about what happened 50 some years ago in our in our organization, how it was started and all of the things that we're talking about now. That is going to help the next generation of black social workers be more founded or based in terms of how they're dealing in our community. Uh, that's the beauty of what the archive committee is all about and what the archive uh, uh, has to do. Provide the resource, the e- technical, educational, intellectual resources for the next generation of black social workers to do it more and more effectively in our community. Thank you,
1: founder Jagger. So you're you're, you're welcome. <laughs> I think that the beauty of um, having an archive, um, which you're talking about, is that it's recorded. There's a blueprint there. Um, It provides an opportunity for intergenerational knowledge. Um, And that's why I'm just so tickled that you're on this uh, podcast with with me. (laughs) I I am with you (laughs) It's because it's an intergenerational knowledge and it's from the people who lived it, the people who were there, the people who have struggled in these spaces uh, for answers. Um, And I know we're living an age where we um, are fighting the. the, the, the culture that wants instant information and instant gratification. But as you said, we're talking about something, as we said, from 1968 and actually was bubbling up before 68 that we are still addressing now. And everything from um, I know there's a new conversation, a new interest around African centered social work. And I'm sitting here looking at um, a conference brochure cover from uh, 1994, in which we had the whole african Center social work conference. But even prior to that, Dr. Amanifu Harvey, who wrote in 1977, I believe, uh, in one of our earlier journals, the Black Caucus, about Afrocentric social work. And so, a lot of what seems to be new, you know, go, takes us back to the Bible verse of there's nothing new under the sun. It's not new. Um, but the, the, and we're not crazy enough to believe the Black social workers are the first one who got here. You've been in the 60s, right? We have to go back to progressive eras and back to the Annabelle and those eras. But Still, that this information has been written down, and we have to um, go back to some of the initial demands that we made as an organization of infusing this knowledge in the curriculum and making sure that it is accessible for the next generations and that they too will take this information and build upon it for the next generation and the next generation. Because I think that's the beauty of what it is that um, I feel like our organization has done so far, maybe not in a most formal way, but it's one of the major contributions that we have for some of the new organizations that are, you know, gearing towards a level of wokeness or consciousness um, of in black and brown communities right now. And I also want to, I'm thinking about the fact that in, I believe it was around 1994, underneath um, Leonard Dunstan's administration, that we introduced the African-centered academy that Dr. Colita Fairfax is um, heading up right now, that that too was has been a remarkable way of which we've tried to transfer this knowledge, to build these, um, th- this, this, level of, of bank of knowledge and uh, expertise around addressing issues in our community for us and by us and the treatment and the research and the, the programs and the institutions that need to be in place and what they would look like if they centered our level of expertise and our culture in them.
2: So, Yeah. I always like to go back to my father when I'm talking about things because he taught me a lot. I'm the third child in a family of six. The youngest child was my sister, Janetta. And her job, given to her by my father, was, and he would cut out all kinds of uh, clips uh, about Black history. And it was, her job was to keep a record of it. Now, my father taught me a lesson. And that is, the lesson is, if it's not written, you don't exist. That's why we have to write our own history. People, no one's going to write our history like I can write the history. So it's, it's our ability to write our own history becomes the building blocks of our, our people over time. That's why the archive committee is so important. The, even the Black Lives Matter people when may someday come to your committee and say, look, i got to find out about this and that because they're coming up with a lot of information that's not grounded in the history of black people. And at some point, they may want, may want to come to you and check out what our history is about. Or they may wanna to go to the black psychologist and check out what their history is about. Because in the search for truth, you've got to go back into history and dig up the facts. And that's how you progress. You've got You, you can't progress in a vacuum. It has to be based upon the knowledge of your people. That's why uh, the archive is so important. And I'm sure it's going to help not only Black social workers, it's going to help other people who want to know about some other dimensions in the Black community besides whatever they're about. Yes. I keep promoting you, sister, because (laughs) what you're doing is so very, very, very important.
1: Um, thank you so much, Founder Jaggers. I will just say that I think the legacy, the legacy, and the institutionalization of the legacy of the National Association of Black Social Work is so very, very important. It certainly has helped me to not only personally but also professionally develop to where I am now, and I continue to um, impart that knowledge into my classrooms and into the work and the research that I do. And it's just such a very um, intricate part of who I am. And I would love for the next generation, you know, to build something that outlives both of us, right? And all three of us, right? (laughs) To build something where other people would go back and be able to say, ah, that's what was happening. And these are some of the same issues. And uh, this is something that has already been tried. So let's not start from point zero, but let's pick up and learn from those lessons um, and move forward. So thank you.
0: Yeah. As you're sharing all this important history and kind of like where you see things going and where you'd like them to go, you know, I just I keep thinking about. social work curriculum and where's this at like it's like i mean all these programs right now are trying to figure out right well some of them how to be anti-racist where there's been all this work done all these years where it was like you could have just been listening to black people the national nabsw all this time and it you know it's frustrating and it's frustrating for students. when they learn this and they're like why did i not get this you know so that's a big part of why i wanted to interview both of you to get this out there because this is what you've been doing has been here all along
1: i appreciate you saying that i actually was going back to look in some of the uh work that um I've been writing lately and some of the, the work that I've been working on to, to elevate that voice and to say exactly what you said. We're right here. So why then within our institutions of higher education have we been marginalized?
0: Mm.
1: How why has our voice been muted? Why are we having an anti-racism um, task force at CSWE? And several of us have uh, to stand. And step up and say, "Um, I don't work on anti-racism stuff. I actually work on race work. I actually center the strength, (laughs) the strengths of the Black community, of Black voice, of Black intellect and thought, of uh, Black expertise, of Black people's uh, way of knowing in everything I do. And so I'm not busy chasing the conversation around anti-racism. I'm busy upholding who we are as a culture and across the African diaspora. I'm busy centering that every time. And so you know that's where my, my work has been, but there I'm not alone. I know I'm not alone. And yet as I said, many of us have been kind of marginalized, um, kind of muted kind of told that that's not the way to success. Uh, You're not gonna be able to sit at the table. Um, I think it's interesting because um, back in, hmm, I'm probably gonna screw up the year, but I wanna say 68 to 69, because it was not too long after um, uh, King's uh, assassination that there was a whole conversation in the Negro Digest about um, black power and what is Black power, and is it even necessary, and does it exist, and so on and so forth, but one of the quotes, um, or one of the conversations that, that struck me was about people who are not free sitting at a table with people who are free, and acting as if you have any power, and so if the only way i can be in these spaces is to then to shrink back my culture and my race and the way i think and my way of doing and to assimilate then that takes away my power and so my strength is lies in who i am and my collective experiences and my collective identity with others and so That has to be at the table every time I come to that space. I don't necessarily have to shout it from the top of the roofs, but it is always at the center of the way I think. It's the center of research. It's the way I teach. It's so on and so forth. And I think that that is kind of what happened in our um, profession, in our organizations, And in our classrooms, people have felt like they have not been free to exercise their power of voice and come as a whole person Mm. in that space because they have been really, what has been reinforced is that that's not a ticket to success.
0: Well said, Dr. Denise. Well said. Wow. And so, so let's get back to black liberation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so here we find ourselves. You know, if you're not free, and you're not ha- have free of thought, then how do you sit there, and literally think about that,
2: and be at a table where other people are free? Well, you know, I don't know if we've really defined freedom.
1: Well, come on, Barbara oh, because I want to hear. Come on.
2: <laughs> well, the white man ain't free. He's tied to us like he's handcuffed to us. He ain't free. I don't think he wants to be free. I don't know. But do we have we defined free? America is not free. Have we ever defined it? What is this thing called free? Please help me. I'm looking for it myself. I think it's a whole that's a whole another subject. Like, that's a whole
1: another section. But I also you. think it's a yeah, it's an internal. It's an internal conversation, That's right? Of what it means to, yes. to feel free, to be yes. free, to be yes. close to free, yes. uh, to be striving for free. Yes. <laughs> um, and then what does that look like collectively?
2: My model in terms of freedom is the, the eternal search for the truth. And mm-hmm. I'm so happy to look for the truth. Wherever I can find it, I keep looking because I want to know the truth. Period. I love truth.
1: it. You know, the truth has consequences.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the truth is, if there anything that is, it's the truth. I'm still hunting for it. I love yeah. it, and it's it's a it's it's a great adventure for me in search of
0: it. Before we wrap up, let's talk about two things. Let's talk about how. Black students and social workers who are listening can get involved. And let's also talk about how people can support your work.
2: Well, my point of view, they can attend a national conference of Black social workers, which I now uh, Zoom.
1: Virtual. Mm -hmm. A
2: lot of literature that's available through our archives committee, including my book, and just personal contacts with a member of the Association of Black Social Workers. That's the most direct way of getting in touch because it's a personal thing. It's not, it's not some enlightenment that, that falls upon people. It's a personal thing.
1: I would agree that it's very personal. Um, so I was a second year second year graduate student at the University of Chicago School of Social Service Administration. My field instructor, Annette Johnson, who is now a, um, I think she's a visiting professor at Jane Adams School of Social Work. At that point, she was part of the um, Chicago Public Schools uh, Social Workers. And she was the person who brought me um, to NABSW, a a, a Chicago um, ABSW um, chapter meeting. I can remember very clearly coming to her office and sitting down with my syllabus and handing it over to her. I was going to be a school social work intern, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there with her and I hand her my stuff and I'm talking about my grades and what I'm interested in. And I'm also a native of Chicago. And uh, she looks at me She looked at the syllabus. She said, this is very nice. She says, but if you really want to impact you really want to impact the young people in uh, your neighborhoods and in the in the spaces in which you want to be, then you got to do something different. And she handed me a list of books to go and buy at the black bookstore. And then she said, and meet me on um, whatever night it was. We have to go to this meeting. And we arrived at this community center. And I walked in and I began to meet all these people who were Black social workers. Keeping in mind, in my class, when I graduated at the University of Chicago, there were only four Black students in my whole entire um, cohort. Mm. Keeping in mind I had also been educated at Illinois State University, the fact that there was a whole group of black social workers somewhere, what were they talking about? What were they doing? Who were those people? And I began to meet all these folks. Furthermore, she decided that I would co-present with her on black youth in schools, something like that, at the national conference. And we went to Boston for the conference. I will never ever forget what it meant to walk into a huge conference room at a hotel to see the drum, hear the drums playing, to see these African dancers, to see everybody dressed in all this wonderful African garb and the room was full of nothing but black social workers as far as I could see. Mm. And I was hooked from there out. I was like, this is my place where I need to be. (laughs) This is where I need to be with these people. And I was meeting educators and people who were at other schools. And I just remember feeling like it was Christmas. It was Jubilee. It was everything all at once for me. And I have not turned back. This was my home. These were the people who began to shape and help me develop my consciousness, which was also an extension of the fact that my uncle, my uh, maternal uncle, had been a member of the Black Panthers. And my family and I, um, my mom and father were always taking us to, you know, we would listen to Operation Uh, bread basket because it wasn't Operation Push at the time. But in Chicago, there was always a very strong political and very conscious Black community. And these were the people that we were always hearing about. And you would go down to Operation Push and go to the different festivals. So this, to me, felt like home. It was an extension Mm -hmm. of who I was and my consciousness. And now, The thought that I would then have a perspective, which I could gain tools to actually help my community as a school social worker. I thought it was just phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal for me. (laughs) It was my place. And as I said, has continued to be my place to actually think that as a little girl from the south side of Chicago, I never met black people who had written books. I knew they wrote books. I didn't know them personally. Mm. That's a very big difference. It never even occurred to me, keeping in mind also, I'm first generation in terms of having not only one degree, two degrees or three degrees, any degrees in my immediate family. So this is a whole new world for me. And I think that knowing where I teach at right now at Morgan State University, I meet many students that have a similar story, that are looking for a space to belong, a space where the conversation is not about the pathology of Black community. Woe is us. How can you fix us? But what is the joy? What is the joy of being Black? Where can you say I'm Black and I'm proud? (laughs) You know, where can you scream that from the rooftop? Where can you be authentic in your space? And there's no questions and you don't have to sit and explain everything. Where can you be? That's the National Association of Black Social Workers for me. It's been that way for all these years. As I said, 34 years I can remember because my daughter, that's how old she is. And I was a new mama. (laughs) And that's what it continues to be for me. And I want other people to catch that joy. That's what I think students are looking for. What's going to be the difference? They're not just coming for a transaction. I pay my money, blah, blah, blah. They want an experience. They want to grow. They want something to change as a result of them sitting and getting this education and going back in their community. They want something to be different. And they need the tools so something can be different.
0: I agree. Powerful.
1: That's my my spot on my story, uh, being a part of Black social workers. I I just... um, And before we go, I just want to even read the preamble of the Code of Ethics so you can understand what's the difference. Like, oh, we don't just say we're black because of the skin color, but we embody and we internalize an ethos that looks different and sounds different and hopefully is different. We be different, We be a part of this African space. We share this, um, the values and the culture and the spirituality uh, and the knowledge of of being in our space. And we're proud of it. We're proud. We're excited. This is our our peace. This is who we are. And it has nothing to do with anybody else. We're just centering the love of self. And the love of who we are. And so if I could just take a minute.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yes. And
1: read that. The NABSW Code of Ethics, which was written, I want to say in sixty eight. It was at towards the it was right after the demands. So it, am it I correct, be Founder 69. Jackers?
2: Sixty nine. Coming out of the catalyst. Coming out right. of the Yes.
1: Coming out of the Black Catalyst, yes. Yeah. And that's another whole conversation. We can talk about something later. There's something else. And it says, in America today, no Black person, except as selfish or irrational, can claim neutrality in the quest for Black liberation, nor fail to consider the implications of the events taking place in our society. Given the necessity for committing ourselves to the struggle for freedom, we as Black Americans practicing in the field of social welfare set forth this statement of ideals and guiding principles. If a sense of community awareness is a precondition for humanitarian acts, then we, as Black social workers, must use our knowledge of the Black community, our commitments to its self-determination, and our helping skills for the benefit of Black people as we marshal our expertise to improve the quality of life of Black people. Our activities will be guided by our Black consciousness, our determination to protect the security of the Black community, and to serve as advocates to relieve suffering of Black people. People by any means necessary. Now, it goes on and it says some other pieces, but they're just a preamble in itself. By any means necessary, we are determined no. to stand in our own power, self-defining, all self-knowing, self-affirming who we are on behalf of our communities. Amen. Thanks, Baba. Amen. You know I love you. I want to make sure they record that and they don't edit
0: that out. (laughs) I'll keep that part. So I'm going to link also to your books, Mr. Jaggers. If you maybe want to say something real briefly about the books so people know, know why they should check them out.
2: If you're interested in the history of the Association of Black Social Workers, part of it is contained in my book, and it's called That Rare Moment. In history and it's entitled that because black social workers did something in 68 which black people were not doing prior to that and that is they came out of an organization and they created their own organization instead of picketing boycotting and doing all kinds of other things asking to be a part of the caucus a lot of people uh, have taken different routes but we took the one route that was a first step toward freedom and that's taking it yourself out of the organization and creating your own. That's why it's called that rare moment in history. And you can email me at garland underscore jaggers at att.net for any information about the book.
0: Absolutely. And I'll put that information in on the website and in the show notes, and there'll be a link directly to, uh, you know, that email so that people can contact you about the book right so thank you so much and i just want to thank you dr denise mr jaggers thank you so much for coming on doing the work and thanks for doing the work in the community thank you for all of you thank
1: you thank you for everything that you're doing to continue the legacy uh as a freedom fighter pushing the story out forward thank you for your time um Uh, Brother Shimon, and to my dear founder, Garland Jaggers of the National Association of Black Social Workers. It's been my honor and joy to be here.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.